I used to, you know, sign autographs after the game and Jay Buhner was our right fielder. And once I was walking around the, the outfield and I'll never forget after the game, he said, you know, I'm, I'm running into walls and jumping up and down and killing myself. And you make one appearance in the right field bleachers and they stand and cheer for you and, and they boo me all every night. And um, so I was a hero. Uh, and then one of my dear friends was out in Minneapolis and after a game, he watched me sign autographs for 20 minutes. And he's never, I'll never forget this. He said, any society that values your autograph is a society that cannot endure. Um, <laughs> Town President Dave Chachi Dennis loves radio and all of his radio friends. Hey, Chachi. Hey, everybody. Because Chachi loves everybody. <laughs> My next guest serves as the founder and chairman of the board of MS Communications Corporation based in Indianapolis. He is currently leading MS through a transition from slower growth traditional media assets to new businesses with better growth profiles. Over the last couple of years, MS announced agreements to sell its interest in its Austin and Indianapolis radio stations. They announced the formation of a new public company called MediaCo that purchased two of the company's New York radio stations. Since the closure, Emmis now has significant capital to complete the transition. Emmis also owns a controlling interest in Diginex, which provides dynamic pricing solutions across multiple industries. Lencore, a worldwide leader in sound masking, paging, and audio solutions for office environments. Sound That Brands, a branded podcast and storytelling company, and its hometown Indianapolis Monthly Magazine. And before I introduce uh, this guest, I'm sure you can guess who it is at this point. Uh, I also have to mention he has been the recipient of multiple prestigious awards, including a giant of broadcasting by the Library of American Broadcasting Foundation. He's an inductee in the Broadcasting and Cable Hall of Fame. The Broadcasters Foundation honored him with a Golden Mike Award, and in 2017, he received the Lowry Mays Excellence in Broadcasting Award. In addition, Emmis was also named by Fortune Magazine as one of the 100 best companies to work for. Please welcome Jeff Simoleon. Jeff. Gotcha. How are you? I am good. What a bio you have. My gosh, what a career. My motto is that if you live long enough and you're not indicted for anything, people give you awards. So that's (laughs) that's my uh, my motto. I have a a friend who's like the leading criminal attorney in Indiana. Uh, He's very famous. And every time I ran into him, I said, another year, I I went another year without being charged with a crime. I'm I'm now too old to commit a crime. And he said, Jeffrey, you are never too old to commit a crime. I'm holding out hope. So... I was kidding. I haven't well, called him for criminal advice. Oh, man. It is so cool to have you here. You also hold the distinction. You are the only person I've ever interviewed twice. Uh, if you've not heard the first Thank interview, you. I highly recommend it because that interview, Jeff really goes throughout his entire career, all the way from being uh, brought up uh, and how he got into the industry and all the way to basically where the company was about a year and a half ago. Today, yeah. we're going to pick up, uh, and first I want to share that Jeff has a brand new book, and we're going to get into that in a little bit, but he just got done authoring a new book called Never Ride a Roller Coaster Upside Down, The Ups and Downs and Reinvention of an Entrepreneur. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, but before we get there, I want to first kind of dive into what it's been like for you to divest in radio, because I know radio is something you've been part of since your early yep. 20s, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Radio has always been the thing that I love more than anything else. Um, but we just sort of said, you know, we've done everything we can in radio. We weren't big enough to have enough scale to do some things. And, and we've looked at some of the people who've had scale and that hadn't been great. 
And we just said, maybe it's time for us to try other things. So we're doing that and, uh, and having fun. And uh, part of your book, a lot of your book is about entrepreneurship and yep. you are a serial entrepreneur by your own admission. And so yep. there's a lot of deals and I can't wait to dig into that book. Uh, one thing that, uh, I want to talk about because you still have one radio station, you still own 1190, uh, WLIB. Right. Are you holding on to that? Is that kind of a sentimental value to you or not, not really? No, no, just not, not <laughs> no, a buyer. <laughs> No, we, we, we haven't found the right buyer yet, but Got if it, we okay. do find the right buyer, yeah, we, we've just said, look, we're going to move on. Um, so we've talked to a lot of people. We've been close to deals, but we, there will be somebody who will, will make a deal and, and it will do that. We've just decided it's time to us to sort of do other things. And you still have a relationship because you sit on the board and are own part owner of Media Co., which owns BLS, right. Hot 97, and Fairway Outdoors. So you still right. have some participation in radio, right. and at least maybe that kind yeah. of fulfills your itch a bit. Right. A little bit, yeah. A little and bit. I do love it. I mean, I, listen, I uh, love this business. Uh, I've loved it since I was probably 10 years old. But like I said, we've done it a long, long time, and we've all agreed, let's do something different. And I think there's no arguing. The imprint you've had on the business has been absolutely remarkable. I mean, just yeah, to name a few of the talent uh, that you helped shape their career, you discovered them. Uh, Ebro, uh, Big Boy, Rick Cummings, Woody, Mike Francesa, Ken Griffey Jr. We'll talk about that in a minute when you owned uh, part of the, when you owned the Mariners in Seattle. Yeah. Uh, a great programming talent, Jimmy Steele. Uh, David Letterman uh, got his start on one of your radio stations. And one person I wanted to bring up who was a big part of the MS family for several years and who just recently passed was Steve Smith. And yeah. I know that Steve yeah. worked for you here in Los Angeles. Yeah. Very, very good guy. And we stayed in touch with Steve. I think the thing that most gratifying is that most of the Emma alums we stay in touch with. And it was very, very difficult to see Steve's passing. I got to see Steve back in February at CRS and we got Rick Cummings on the line and we did a yeah. little uh, FaceTime with him. And so it yeah. was just awesome to listen in on some of their stories. And yeah, uh, there have been more crazy stories over the, all these years. It's just, it, I think that was the most fun about writing the book, just recounting a lot of the crazy stories. I'm sure. I'm sure. And just yeah. the stations that you've owned, I mean, what yeah. just, you know, heritage, massive, massive signals. Talk to me a little bit about, uh, I, I want to go through each of the current companies that you own so I can learn a little bit about that. Right. Uh, one, which is right there in your backyard and you've owned for a long time is the uh, Indianapolis Monthly Magazine. Right. Uh, we've owned Indianapolis Monthly for about 30 years. Again, we're talking to people about that as well, because we've just sort of said, if we're vacating media, we're vacating media. So we're going to see about that. Um, I love the magazine. Again, we, at one point we owned Texas Monthly, Los Angeles, Atlanta, Cincinnati, Orange County. So we've owned a lot of magazines, but we've sort of made a decision, a pivot a few years ago to say, look, let's go into other things. Are Lou and John Dickey still involved? They had a publishing company as well. They still are. They have, um, it's a little different thing. We had city magazines, which are much more focused on editorial. Uh, Lou and John's stuff is really more, I want to say, glossy, uh, much more uh, retail focused, um, not really as much editorial content, a little bit different take on the business. Um, two distinct takes really in the business. And I know obviously you being in Indianapolis, that's where you were uh, mostly raised. And then you came out here to school and then you've been right. back there for, for quite right. some time. Uh, right. You know, both the radio stations and this magazine have been an integral part of the community for so many years, which right. you obviously. Yeah, Indianap Indianapolis home. My family's been here well over a hundred years and uh, uh, it's home. And it's funny when I, when I came back after school at SC, 
the first six months, I said, what in the world have I done? Uh, I love L.A. <laughs> uh, but then we started the company here, and I've been it had a chance to be involved in so many things that deal with the future of the company that it's it's been very gratifying. And it, it, so I've, I've enjoyed being here a lot. I think Indianapolis is a great city. I've been there a couple times and just absolutely yeah. love it. Very proud of it. And uh, my wife, as we go into another winter, my wife says, please explain to me why we're doing this. again." <laughs> but I love it. It's home. Uh, tell me a little bit about Dig- is Diginex. Uh, they're a provider of dynamic pricing solutions right. to national brands across multiple industries. Yeah, it's really been a business that we we bought sort of uh, a number of years ago, five or six years ago, and we put Greg Lowen in charge of it. Uh, as one of our bright young people, and um, it's really grown a lot. It's it developed a very significant niche in the attraction space, the performing arts space. They have a lot of symphonies, theaters, zoos, museums, you know, other attractions, and uh, it's grown very nicely. Matter of fact, now we're trying to automate more of the processes and uh, and see if it continues to you know gain business. But it, we we joked it was the world's longest sales cycle when we started because nobody knew what dynamic pricing was. So we'd meet somebody, you know, and then two years later or three years later, they'd say, "Gee, I want to sign up." Now uh, the work is so well known and our customer retention is so good that uh, uh, the sales cycle has shortened quite a bit. So we're very pleased. It seems to be part of your MO. You tend to be ahead of the curve and that's happened to you, I think, a few times throughout your career. But with Diginex, now you see surge pricing with Uber and it's something that's, you know, uh, Disney charges more for certain times of the year. If you want to go at Christmas time, you're going to pay more than if you want to go in January. So this was a company that was way ahead of its time and you help multiple industries basically maximize their ticket value, correct? Yeah, absolutely right. And and you're right. I always say a pioneer usually either gets to the promised land or he dies just uh, before he gets to the promised land with arrows in his back. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, but we, we, yeah, we, we've been fortunate on Diginex. This worked pretty well. So you've had, you've had uh, arrows in your back a few times, but uh, it's absolutely all, positively. It's, <laughs> it's, all, it's all worked out. It's all worked out in the end. Uh, Sound that brands, which I'm, I'm very familiar with and uh, in, in full transparency, we do some work with Sound that brands, but uh, yeah, you do. Uh, Dave, Dave Beesing, who's just talking about an incredible talent, amazing programmer. Yeah. Uh, I was way ahead of his time when he got into podcasting and uh, you guys are uh, audio storytellers. And in our yeah. case, we work with you on producing a podcast for National Geographic, but I know you work with some other right. really big uh, uh, companies. How has your uh, kind of stepping into the podcast space gone for you? Well, again, it's a slower sales cycle, but what we found is we do very good work and you find that if you do good work, people discover you. And as you know, Rick is overseeing that and Rick and I have been together for uh, every day of Emmis. Uh, We're incredibly close. I always try to say something snarky about him, Um, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, we've been together a long, long time. That's I kid, we've been together all these years and we probably disagreed on 10,000 things and we've never gotten mad at each other. I don't know <laughs> what that is, but uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful relationship. Rick is one of the funniest, uh, most talented, and just nicest guys I've ever met. I love connecting with Rick. Yeah, and, we're, we're very close. Yeah. Uh, people come up and say to me, how's Rick Cummings? And I go, we fired him just last week. I said, you guys have been together 40 years. How could they be? I said, no, Cummings is here for the duration. We are very close. We talk all the time, and I don't think anybody has ever done what Rick has done in, in creating content for American radio and other things he's done. But 
uh, just a remarkable talent. And more than that, uh, a very, very close friend. He's a, he's a good man. And I'm so happy. Uh, every time we've got a project that we can work together, I always really enjoy it. Uh, he's an yep. amazing person. And I can't say enough just about how you treat your team and how many time, you know, time and time again, I've heard stories, uh, from, you know, prior staff members, uh, just how well you guys have, uh, have treated them. And I think I've told this story in, in the past, but uh, I think it's worthy of bringing it up uh, again. I know when you guys sold power here a few years ago to Morello, that, uh, you had a party afterwards to thank all of the staff and and actually handed out checks uh, to people that had been with you over the years uh, so they could participate in some of the proceeds that you made, which I think is unheard of. I don't think I've ever actually heard of that before. And, uh, you know, listen, I think you win with people. And I think one of the hardest parts about vacating the radio space is that we finally concluded that we couldn't create the value uh, continuing to go on that we wanted. And I've always said, the most fun part about making something work is that everybody shares and everybody is appreciated. And I think just that was just a small token of the appreciation we had for so many people who made such a difference. Uh, you are a, a good man and just a phenomenal leader. And it, I, I'm so excited to talk about your book. We're going to get there in, in a minute, but I have to tell you, it's, it's sad to me on a personal level to see you leave radio because I just think you've been, uh, you're a bastion in the industry and someone that I think so many people have revered. And in sometimes it's a dog eat uh, dog world and you've just always really taken care of your own. And I think you've really tried to do a lot of great things over the years for the in- industry. And, um, you know, yeah. but anyhow, let's, uh, let's go through a couple more businesses that, uh, that you guys own. And then we're going right. to, we're going to dive into the book. Tell me a little bit about Lencore. The last time we spoke, and this was just right as the pandemic was unfortunately starting to take hold. I think you guys had just closed on it. It's a right. worldwide leader in sound masking. Right. Of course, I always say because of my brilliance, uh, only we could buy a business that manages sound in offices all over the world, right before all the offices all over the world shut. Uh, so, that, so that kind of made it fun. But we, we love the business. They do a great job. It's a great product. And uh, our timing was uh, impeccably bad, uh, but we love the business and uh, we think it's got a very good future. Good. And as companies are starting to go back to the office, I'm sure that demand is is picking up. But the technology that's involved there is incredibly impressive. I looked a bit uh, on the website and yeah. it's amazing what you can do, especially in shared spaces and uh, how you're able to uh, really help quiet down a room or a restaurant. It's impressive technology. Yeah, it really is. The human voice, I think, and, and by the way, now we're getting to the outer limits of my technical expertise, but normal conversation is about 65 decibels. And at 65 decibels, if I'm in one cubicle and you're in another, you could hear my conversations, I can hear yours. What sound masking does is it drives those decibels down about 47. So while you might hear something, it's not nearly as distracting when it's at a higher level. So that's the it's, simple version of Yeah, and I'm sure it leads to more productivity in the office yeah, space and a better work it environment. Does. Yeah, it does. Um, yeah. So back uh, just a couple of years ago, uh, you guys uh, started a SPAC called Monument Circle. You raised over right. $250 million and right. uh, you're, you're out there looking for acquisitions. Has that changed at all? Because I know the markets have definitely shifted over the last year or so. Yeah, we, we are in uh, dis- final discussions about the third time. I have no idea if stuff gets done or not. It is a, this is a space, I was kid, this is, a, I always believe life is kind of a pendulum shift. When we started, we went out to raise $200 million. We had, we did like a day and a half of Zoom calls and got over a billion dollars of bids. We upped <laughs> it back to 250. 
we found a deal right away that we loved. And uh, because the shareholders at the last minute backed out of it, it was actually in the music space. Um, and then what we found is that space has kind of collapsed. Now, we still may be able to pull off a deal, but it's certainly a, a space that I think there's a, there's a place for SPACs. But right now, the SPAC market, the IPO market are very, very down. So sure. we'll see. We're hopeful, but not optimistic. We'll see. Sure. That in j- just if you look at this last year um, or well, last couple years, I mean, what are what do you see? Uh, I think probably having more experience than anyone I've ever spoken to on the, the, the business world. What does your gut and what does your expertise tell you what we're going to see, let's say, I- over the next three years? Well, I think the economy is clearly slowing down. I'm not sure it's going to be a monumental recession, but there's so much overhang from the pandemic, all the spending the you know that was done you know in the pandemic to try to try to save the economy and since people were not out when they finally got back out toward the end of the pandemic they started spending a lot uh a lot of pent-up demand for labor so you have inflation it's not just an american problem it's all over the world uh whether it leads to recession you know this is this is one of those inflationary periods that no one's ever seen before so nobody quite knows exactly what we're we're headed for yeah. yeah, it's been fascinating to watch, and I know it's unprecedented. I hear a lot of people uh, compare it to the way the Fed is uh, raising rates. I think it was Volcker. He was the head of the Fed back like in the 80s, uh, late right. 70s. And so right. there's some fear that maybe they'll raise interest rates uh, too fast. But on the other hand, there seems to be still relatively decent quarterly reports coming out of some, you know, some, yeah. some businesses. I think, so. like I said, I don't, I'm not sure we're headed for a full-blown recession. Uh, the labor market certainly is spectacular. Prices are up, but prices are up here and all over the world because of, uh, I think, the pent-up demand from COVID and also, of course, you know, the, the war in Ukraine and what's that, what that's done to the energy market. But I'm hopeful that, that, that we're going to ease out of this. Yeah, that it transitions quickly. Well, I hope so as well. From your mouth to God's ears, my friend. Let's. Yeah. Let's dive in uh, to the to the new book and the reason uh, okay. that, that you're you're here and so excited to go through this uh, with you and I can't wait to read it. By the way, I've uh, I've read a few uh, reviews and uh, I've heard nothing but great things. And uh, uh, it's called "Never Ride a Roller Coaster Upside Down: The Ups and Downs and Reinvention of the Entrepreneur." Um, I'm going to read the synopsis and then we'll 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 dive in here. So, what is it really like to be an entrepreneur after nearly 50 years of building a successful media company, founder of American All Sports Radio? Jeff Simoleon shares with candor and humor just how many bitter failures come with each great victory along the way. What made you decide to to, to write a book? Um, it was really the genesis of my daughter. I had driven my daughter to school every day from kindergarten to when she fired me, when she got her driver's license in high school. <laughs> um, and every day we would talk about the lessons I had learned and the stories of my life. And she said, Dad, one day she said, you got to write this down. This is this be a great book. So when COVID came about, I just, you know, things were slow and I just started writing. And the next thing I knew, I had 300 pages and I sent it to a couple of friends and they said, you know, you really got something here. And one of my friends said, my husband just did this. He teaches at Harvard. He just did a book. He had the world's best editor. You should hire this woman. She will be a great sounding board. And I hired her and she was fabulous. And we would just kick stuff around and she'd say, okay, add here, cut here. This needs to be amplified. This is extraneous to moving the story forward. And, you know, three or four months later, we had it, you know, we had a proposal out and we pitched it to 
agent. So we got an agent, very good That's agent. Awesome. Um, and then the next thing you know, he pitched it to publishers and we got a, a publisher that we liked. And who who knows? Here we are. But it was the whole thing. I, I've called it the most cathartic experience I've ever had. A lot sure. of fun. Yeah. What a phenomenal just process going through that. It's almost yeah. like I'm sure therapy in and of itself. And I heard, I can't remember who the quote came from, but uh, you are a man of action and you learn not all action, uh, unfortunately succeeds, but you will always learn yeah. from action and uh, to be able to basically take all those lessons and put it down in a book and tell your story, yeah. I think is uh, Yeah. Two of the fantastic. chapters, one of my favorite sayings, Chachi, is uh, the line between being a genius and an idiot is very fine. <laughs> uh, and I've been on both sides of that line. So, so one chapter is uh, Idiot to Genius, which is WFAN, which I did. Um, and it was an idea I had had for all sports radio when I was in college. And when we bought the Doubleday stations, you know, we had one FM in New York and one in Washington. And there was this AM station and it carried the Mets and it was talk and it was country. And I said, this would be a great time to do all sports radio. And we had a manager's meeting. If you know our, our culture, it's very collaborative. And at the manager's meeting, uh, it got voted down. And I'll never forget one of my dear friends, Steve Crane, who helped me, came into the company when I started it, said, what do you want to do? I know you want to do this. And I said, look, you can't lead where others won't follow. So we're not doing it. Uh, and then um, the next day, my two senior managers, Doyle Rose and the aforementioned Rick Cummings, came in and we said, look, now, we still think this is a really stupid idea, um, but we owe you one and we're doing well everywhere, so let's do it. We just don't want to be bothered with it, but we'll do the format. And <laughs> it was a disaster. I mean, Jim, Jim Lampley called it the Vietnam War of Emmas. Um, <laughs> our, first, our first morning man was Greg Gumbel. There are more people on this call than listened to Greg Gumbel our first year. Um, but... We persevered, and every day uh, we'd have a meeting, and somebody would say, well, it's 5 o'clock. We lost another $10,000 at FAN today. Um, <laughs> so I was I was in the idiot camp, and my friend John Dilley, who I don't know if you know John, Federated Media, John said, I, I was in New York. I used to think you were a really smart guy. Then I listened to that radio station. You're really not. <laughs> um, oh, my God. And, and then we bought the NBC stations and we put Mike and the Mad Dog on. We got Imus in the morning and the whole thing turned around. So I went, I became an absolute genius. Um, so I went from idiot to genius. And then after that, we bought the Seattle Mariners. And um, uh, that chapter is called Genius to Idiot. Um, <laughs> because when we bought the Mariners, I was the boy wonder. And, you know, I, I used to, you know, sign autographs after the game and Jay Buhner was our right fielder. And once I was walking around the, the outfield and I'll never forget after the game, he said, you know, I'm, I'm running into walls and jumping up and down and killing myself. And you make one appearance in the right field bleachers and they stand and cheer for you and, and they boo me all every night. And, um, so I was a hero. Uh, and then, one of my dear friends was out in Minneapolis, and after a game, he watched me sign autographs for 20 minutes. And he's never, I'll never forget this. He said, any society that values your autograph is a society that cannot endure. Um, <laughs> so, so I did, and, then, and then after a few years, it was like, yeah, this isn't working. Uh, we got to sell the team. And they didn't think anybody in their right mind would buy a baseball team in Seattle again. 
so they thought we were going to sell it and move it or just move it ourselves. And so I became a pariah. Uh, oh, my God, Smullyan's taken our teams. We never did. So I went truly from genius to idiot where um, my friend Peter Chernin, who ran the Dodgers for Fox, I'll never forget, he said, I hate owning a baseball team. Every day they call me a moron on the, in the sports section. And I said, Peter, it could be worse. They called me a moron on the front page every day. So, <laughs> but but, it, but we've, we've had fun. We've had ups and downs. We've, we've won a lot. We've lost a lot. But we've had fun all the way along. Uh, back to the fan really quick. And then I do want to dive into the Mariners because you yeah. are the only person that I have ever met in my life that's owned a major league baseball team or a professional sports team for that, uh, for that matter. Yeah. But uh, the fan, when you came up with that format, that predated ESPN, correct? No, the ESPN no? was on the air. It was the very early days of ESPN. Okay. Um, but everybody, you know, and ESPN was certainly not a success at that point. But everybody said, well, it's one thing to do TV, you know, uh, but no, nobody can ever do radio doing all sports. Now, listen, if it had never come along, I promise you a couple of years later, somebody would have done it. Do you recall how long it took for it to finally gel and pay off? About 18 months, 18 about 18 months. months to two years. Yeah. And where did, um, di- where did that idea come from when you first, you were, you said you were back in college when you initially came up yeah, with it? Just, uh, I was in a media class and just thinking about all sports and just thought, boy, that would be fun to do someday. That's it. And have you always been a sports fan yourself? Only since birth. <laughs> um, only, only, always been. I, I, um, I always kidded, you know, I'm, I'm like every other kid in America. I believe that when I grew up, I would play center field for the, the giants or a quarterback for the Colts or some, one of those things. And then the genetic uh, deficiencies stepped in and I really didn't have the ability. So uh, then I set my sights on ownership. Hey, that's uh, not a bad fallback plan at all. So when you went to go buy the Mariners, I know you raised some of that money, but you also had to throw a lot of your own skin in the game. And isn't it a pretty- Yeah, that's a long story. It was supposed to be an Emmis investment and at the last minute Emmis couldn't. So it was me personally- Long story. You got to read the book because it's too boring to tell on a podcast. All right. Well, I'd love, I'd love to hear. I, I will read the book once I get it. So, <laughs> but what, fill me in just a little bit about yeah. the process because don't all the MLB uh, owners have to approve a new owner coming in? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. And, uh, you know, it, the guy who was head of the ownership committee, a guy named Jerry Reinsdorf. Uh, and Jerry has become like a big brother to me. And Jerry early on said, look, we'd love to have you in baseball. I'm not sure why anybody would want to buy the Mariners. Um, <laughs> true, true story. And, and, of course, Jerry's whole life is, you know, we've been friends for 35 years now or more. And he always says, I told you. He, he always says, Jeffrey always asks me for my advice, and then he does the opposite thing. And I said, well, Jerry, it's just like my kids. They asked me for their, my advice and then they do the opposite thing. But uh, when Ken Griffey Jr. came on to the scene and you were obviously involved with that and you yeah. know, Hall of Fame, incredible player, uh, did that help with, uh, with, with attendance and did that help with just re- driving revenue ultimately? A little bit. Yeah, we, we really drove attendance. We really did it. I'm very proud. I, I always said that the job we did marketing, we came up with all sorts of crazy stuff. Uh, we had movie clips, stuff that you now see in ballparks nobody had ever done. Really? When we, did, when we did our first marketing. We said, if you're marketing the Red Sox, your marketing campaign is season starts April 6th, get your tickets now. Uh, sure. But in Seattle, our marketing was, look, we know you think these guys suck, but um, <laughs> it's a new era. And we had more fun. We had a great campaign. We did some of the most inventive advertising I've ever seen. I, I've always said our advertising for the fan and, and the Mariners were the, some of the most fun I've ever had. 
how much time were you spending in Seattle? Were you there a fair amount? I was, there, I was there about at least 50 to 60% of the time. I wow. was there during the winter. I used to, I was divorced. So I had my kids on the weekend and I would drop them off at school. And then I'd jump on a plane and go to Seattle. And I was usually there till Friday afternoon. So I was there a lot. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I could do a whole interview with you just about that, but I was sort of the Tom Joyner of, uh, the, of the fly. <laughs> the fly <laughs> yeah. So uh, talk to me a little bit about, uh, getting into, well, obviously, uh, creating the fan. You sold that by the way, I should note to Mel Carmazon for 75 right. million, which was more right. than any other AM radio station has ever sold right. before. Right. Was that hard? And I guess this is where I get very, I'm an entrepreneur. Um, not that I'm comparing yeah. myself to you because my, I've never had nearly the success as you, but when you had an asset like the fan or the Mariners, yeah. were those hard sometimes to say goodbye to? Always. I'm, you know, I'm a classic entrepreneur, falls in love with what he owns too much. So, but during the baseball thing, it's right when the radio business kind of collapsed. So we knew we had to divest things and Mel's offer was spectacular. And we just said, look, uh, it was very painful, but it was either sell hot or, or the, the fan. And we decided to sell because we looked at the future and said, uh, uh, there's more future on FM than there is AM. And Mel, we knew Mel was going to use the fan to leverage it to, to do his IPO. The fan was the darling of Wall Street. And it, it made it very easy for Mel to do an IPO off of the fan. When a deal like that goes down at that kind of level, are you yeah. negotiating with Mel directly or how does oh, yeah. you, you, okay. Yeah. So, it's always principle to principle. Yeah. And do you find when the, it's a higher price, uh, like that type of asset, do those negotiations get more difficult or are they somewhat easier? It always depends on the person. Uh, Mel was never easy. <laughs> Mel, was, Mel, Mel was never negotiating with Mel. And Mel was legendarily difficult. He loved being difficult. It's funny because I've gotten to know Craig well. Right. His um, son owns, uh, we should note, uh, Good Karma. Good Karma. Good Karma. And Craig could not be more of a polar opposite from Mel. Um, <laughs> yeah, Mel was The best line about Mel was Norm Pattis. Norm said, Mel would never stab you in the back. Because he enjoys stabbing you in the chest too much, and that was Mel. <laughs> and we always had a we always had a great relationship, uh, but it was challenging. But yeah, it just depends on the deal. I've had easy deals, hard deals. Most deals, you know. Listen, I've learned a long time ago: deals got to make sense for both sides. Uh, and if you can figure out what's the other guy's interest and what's important to him or her, and then you know what's in your interest, usually you can try to find a deal. A couple of the books that are old books, been around for a long time, uh, that have been very helpful in my career was Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence Others, who I believe Warren Buffett read at, at one point and, and credits that book. And then I also read, I think it was called uh, The Art of Negotiation by Herb Cohen. Right. I remember and, Herb Cohen. Yeah, yeah. And that was really helpful as well. Um, but yeah. uh, I, I've never negotiated anything near the level that you've negotiated. And so I find that just so I'd love to be a fly on the wall. Well, it doesn't matter. I, you know, we're talking about George Ardros the other day and George and I, and George is a legendarily challenging negotiator as well. And we were down to one last issue. The deal was like a $76 million deal. And there was like $100,000 issue. We went back and forth. And I said, George, this is crazy. Flip a coin. So we can't flip a coin. I said, George, why not? Said, we're going to go for it. Let's flip a coin. And he said, are you serious? I said, yeah, it's, well, it's the last issue. Flip a coin. Flip a coin. I won. I remember that. I think George never forgot uh, that I beat him out of $100,000. But I said, we, we could spend hours on this issue. It's amazing. And, and it's funny because I am a guy. 
I would never go to Las Vegas and gamble. If I <laughs> went to Las Vegas and bet a hundred thousand dollars on anything, I'd kill myself. <laughs> but in but in a negotiation, it's like, look, you know, this yeah, depends. it's. Oh, that's a great story. Thank you for sharing that. But it makes sense. You go to Vegas and that's not a, uh, when you're selling an asset or buying an asset, there's a intrinsic value for that. And Vegas yeah. is, and I, I, I do like Vegas. I, I'll gamble a little bit, but I, I completely get that. There's yeah. nothing there, but th that's luck versus, uh, versus yeah. skill. Yeah. That's funny. That's a great story. So, um, you, you got into, and I, I know nothing about this business, but I'm kind of fascinated to hear more about it. Uh, tell me about cable and uh, TV and your ventures in, into that whole world. And you're in the cable uh, hall of fame, I believe, right? Well, I'm broadcasting cable. Broadcasting. I, don't think, I think I'm in the cable hall of fame because I never owned anything in cable and they were happy not for me to own anything. Yet. No. <laughs> Sorry, um, <Brian. laughs> we, owned, we owned 16 TV stations and we did it at the height of the radio frenzy after the 96 act where we just saw prices were, you know, radio is historically a business sold for 10 times cash flow. And then all of a sudden in a two year period, it went to like 23 times cash flow. And we said, this is kind of crazy. So we said, we think our skill sets are applicable to TV. Greg Nathanson, who was my college roommate and a dear friend and an investor of Emma's had run the Fox stations, he'd run Showtime, he'd run Tribune stations. And I said, look, I'll do this if you run the TV group. So we ended up buying what became 16 TV stations that we, we operated for a number of years. That's, that's quite a fleet. What is the difference? Yeah. I, I guess I was a little bit close to television when I was in San Diego. Uh, I worked at uh, KFMB FM and they had KFMB sure. TV, uh, the Myers right. family. And so there was television down the hall. So I would poke my head right. in every once in a while just to kind of see what it was all about. But is it as fun as a business as radio or is it a little bit more stuffy? It, it is. It, it's not nearly as management intensive because I used to say, you know, in the old days, you just turn on the plug and whatever the network sends you, and then you've got to create good local news and a good morning stuff, but not nearly as creative. Um, probably, you know, I think, a, I think the radio business was so competitive and people, you know, you had to fight 25 guys in a market uh, to survive. And I think TV had four stages in a market and all of them were growing by 10 or 12% a year. So I don't think it was a management intensive. We did find that by being more entrepreneurial, it, it helped the stations pretty much significantly. And did you have all, like you had ABC affiliates, NBC affiliates, or were you all? We had fun? everything. You had everything. We had ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox. The first four stations we bought were Fox affiliates that had been other networks. And Rupert Murdoch and Barry Diller created a company called Savoy, where they made a deal to switch. I know in, in, in Green Bay and Honolulu and, um, Mobile, they were big NBC affiliates. And in New Orleans, it was the ABC affiliate and they all became Fox. But we had everything. We had CBS in Portland, Oregon, and we had NBC in Charleston and we had, uh, you name it. We were all, all the networks. We were WB in Orlando. Does the local affiliate, the local stations that you own, do they have to pay the network or is it like a barter similar to a radio network where they provide? Well, no, they don't. Well, they, no, they actually, the networks used to pay them. Now that's gone through many iterations where now the networks don't, didn't, recently didn't pay, but you got all the content and the network, networks got all the inventory, a lot of the inventory. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Fascinating. Talk to me a little bit about, and you mentioned in your book, and this had to have been an incredibly scary time, but you almost had to file for personal bankruptcy during the recession. What happened? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we just, um, you know, you, you have, a company that one day is worth, you know, a hundred dollars a share and the next day it's worth 25 cents. They had some borrowings and, uh, one day your loans are due and it's like, uh oh, um, you're, you know, and it, it, it was it, it's shocking to me. Um, but 
you know, when you're, when your company, which has been worth many times hundreds of millions of dollars, even several billion dollars, all of a sudden one day you're, you know, and, and I, of course, would, did not diversify enough. I had some other investments, but, uh, everything I had was tied up in Emma's stock. And one day when they tell your stock is wor- worthless and you have some outstanding loans, it's like, okay, now how do I solve this? We were fortunate enough to work through it. But, you know, most people looked at me and looked at Emma's and say, the whole thing's got to go bankrupt. And we didn't, and we persevered. And I think that's the thing I'm as proud of as anything, Chachi. Yeah, that's amazing. And you, and obviously over the last few years, we've seen uh, Cumulus go bankrupt. Uh, we saw Alpha, we saw iHeart go bankrupt. Emma's has never gone bankrupt. Not, not that I know of. No, seriously, <laughs> never has. And I, and I'm very proud of that. Um, you know, we persevered and we did, you know, when people said, Emma's is going to go bankrupt, you're going to go bankrupt. And we didn't. And we survived. And I, I could not be prouder. One day, four or five years ago, uh, Ryan Hornaday, my CFO, walked in and said, Jeffrey, we paid off the last of a billion, six hundred million dollars of debt. Oh my. Uh, we have no debt. Today, we have nice amounts of money in the bank. We have no debt. So we're very proud of that. Um, and you're right. You look at a lot of our peers and, uh, you know, they've either been bankrupt or are on the verge of bankruptcy. So I'm very proud of that. And it's, it's a tribute to my people. Chachi. That's yeah. Um, well, and a tribute, you put your own skin in the game and I'm yeah. not knocking, you know, cause I, some people don't have to do that, but I think that there's something to be said to that, to have your own skin in the game. And yeah. it's incredible. I couldn't even fathom what it would be like to carry that kind of debt. We obviously here have, have, have a little bit of debt that actually relies it's I'm, I'm the signer on that, on that debt. Yep. And there's times yep. where I'm, I'm nervous. I'm always the last, to, the, the last to get paid and you know, yep. whatever it may be, but I couldn't imagine how were you able to compartmentalize that and go home? Well, and you still just be- sort of say, you know, you got a plan and you say, you know, when, when things are bad and, and I'm not going to kid you, you know, in, in 2008, 2009, 2010, when the world collapsed, you know, and, and your company is viewed as worthless and it's got hundreds of millions of dollars of debt. You just say, we're going to roll up our sleeves and we're going to solve this. And it took a lot of very dedicated, very committed people and we solved it and we did. You've always been very close to, uh, obviously to the industry and so well revered in the industry. Were there other mentors to you? Uh, like maybe I'm just throwing names out there, but like a George Beasley, or were there people that you would call on sometimes for advice that were across the street possibly as a competitor? Yeah, I had so many friends. John Dilley really was, when I was starting, John's a little older than me and John's in Northern Indiana and John and I have been dear friends forever. Probably my closest life coach was Jerry Reinsdorf. Uh, would just say, what about this? What about that? But I've been incredibly close to so many people in the industry. If I start naming them, I'll forget yeah. some of them. Um, but, you know, and I think, at the end of the day, it's the friendships you make that matter more than anything. And I've, I've got a lot of friends in this industry that I love dearly. Let's talk a little bit about uh, ne- Next Radio. And uh, I, I, we're talking about some failures and we'll, we'll yeah. bring that up because I looked at that as something that I felt the industry so desperately needed and you were leading the charge. And that was really supposed to be all of the, uh, it, you know, all the big broadcasters coming together yeah. to help you with that. But the way at least it I viewed it. It felt like it was mostly getting dumped on you and you were the yeah. one having to carry that. Um, you mind telling me what happened? Well, you know, it's funny. We, we, we were at a meeting. There used to be, I think, nine CEOs that would meet quarterly, talk about the industry. It was all the biggest companies. And David Rare was head of the NAB. And David walked in one day and said, this is a radio with a chip in it. It is all the rage in Europe and Asia. Uh, this is right before the flip phones. I mean, right at the end of the flip phones. 
And he said, we need to get these chips turned on. And we all looked at it and said, my gosh, this is fabulous. And somebody in the room knew that I had worked on an application with Nokia uh, for a broadcasting license in Finland. And somebody said, hey, you know the Finnish phone guys, Nokia guys, will you look at it? And I did. I fell in love with the project. If you know the business, Chachi, you know that when we were all starting out, everybody had, well, when I was starting out as a kid, everybody had a transistor radio in their pocket. Uh, and then there were Walkman. Uh, and then there were boom boxes. And, you know, by the turn of the last century, portability had kind of died. And I looked at this and said, if you could put an FM chip in there where you could actually get radio outside of the streaming ecosystem, this solves all our problems. As you know, and I know, you know, we've been streaming audio since the mid 90s and nobody makes any money at it. Yeah, right. because of the data charges, because of the licensing charges. It's just an inefficient mechanism to distribute. So we said, if you could put a chip there and your over-the-air signal comes on, you don't have the music, you don't have the, the, the performance royalties, you don't have the data cost. So we said, this this could give portability to the industry. And by then, everybody knew that the, the appliance of the future was the phone. So I took it on, fell in love with the projects. Probably six months later, the first iPhone came along. And two or three months after that, somebody said to me, you realize you don't now have to get a phone, a chip installed. There is a chip in every smartphone in the world because they had decided that they would put an FM tuner in, in all the phones. So then it was just a question of getting them turned on. Right. Um, and it, it was a tremendously challenging process, not only, you know, convincing broadcasters why this mattered, because sometimes you'd have to go through. I, I, I still remember giving the example in speeches about the difference between my signal in Los Angeles, where it cost me $65,000 a year for distribution, because that was the electricity in my transmitter. And with that $65,000, I could reach you know, 15 million people in Southern California, sure. as opposed to streaming, which with my 3 million listeners a week would cost me Two and a half million dollars. And so 65,000 versus two and a half million. And I do that at conventions and people go, wow, I never thought about that. I think Pat Walsh always said the difference between I can take the same listener over the air and it's a 30% margin customer profitability and, and take the same listener, same content for streaming and it's a minus 10%. You know, one's a good business, one's a bad one. So we said this solves the problem, but we also knew that the phone guys, the Nokia guys told us in the very beginning, look, it's easy to put a chip in because we're we're Nokia and we put it in and we know that if it costs us 50 cents a chip, we can sell it to consumers in our phone stores for five bucks. So it's it's great. But they said in the very beginning, your problem is all of the phones are sold by the carriers in the United States, really not by the manufacturers. And those carriers don't anything in their ecosystem. So we knew we had a job convincing the carriers and that that took a long time, and we had to all chip in. It's a, it was an ordeal, but I think uh, I loved it. Uh, and then we realized afterwards, after a while, that we had a real product problem because there were too many commercials. And that's why we pivoted to trying to amass data. And I still think, um, I love the idea. I still think it was the most important thing the industry could do. But you just had such a, you know, a fragmented industry and you have so many debt problems with the industry. And we finally said, you know, my board said, Jeff, we are research and development for the entire American radio industry. We're funding all of it. 
and when it came time for other people to chip in, it was just uh, couldn't be done. Uh, well, I uh, commend you for doing it, and I still to this day agree it would have been a huge boon for the industry. And uh, yeah. I don't see how it wouldn't be wildly popular. And yeah, uh, to, to was, your point, we we always knew that if you could make it ubiquitous, that it would do more to save the industry than anything else. What asset, if you could have one back that you've sold, would you pick? Well, from a financial standpoint, any major league baseball team. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I we should've... bought it for 75, we sold it for 125, <laughs> and they're selling for about 2 billion today. <laughs> um, emotionally, I love fan, always did. But I've sort of made a promise never to regret, never to look back. Yeah. Um, I have a favorite saying, if any one of 10 things had happened, my company would be a uh, hundred times bigger. And if any one of 10 other things had happened, I would be sweeping streets somewhere. So I look at my life and say, I've got a really pretty remarkable life and I'm very happy. So uh, people say, don't you regret this? Don't you regret that? And, and what I've learned is I, I really don't. I'm happy. I know that uh, politics are important to you. You've given a yeah. lot back to the community. You've served on, uh, we serve on the Library of American Broadcasting Foundation together. You've headed a U.S. delegation that helped to negotiate a landmark deal uh, between Israel and, Palest- and the Palestine Liberation Organization. What are your thoughts uh, politically? If, uh, and I know you had stations in Hungary and they were nationalized yeah. by Orban, yeah. who I think is right. uh, an incredible, and I'm not talking about the Orban uh, that is uh, a processing unit in <laughs> at the radio station. I'm talking <laughs> I about wish, uh, <laughs> I wish you had been. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, Victor or- Orban, who is yeah. uh, an incredibly uh, scary um, fascist leader, uh, or close to fascist, let's say, in uh, in Hungary. But uh, yeah. w- where do you see things right now? Uh, just, I-, I guess, globally, but also in the United States. Are, are you? Do you feel like we're at a point of no return, or this is things that can hopefully get better well, again? Well, I'm an optimist, so I always believe we can return. And you know, this country fought a civil war, and we. You know, we fed it off the British and we you saved the world for, you know, from the Nazis. So I'm an optimist. I do have to laugh. Uh, we were Victor Orban's first case. Um, one of my favorite stories is, if I can, anything could be favorite. When it started happening, Paul Fittick and Barbara Bill were running it and they said, these guys, it looks like they're trying to take our license away. And Bill Kennard, who was former FCC chair, was uh, the newly uh, installed U.S. ambassador to the European Union, and he was in Brussels. And I called Bill, and I said, Bill, we're being nationalized. He said, Jeff, you can't be nationalized. They're members of the EU. They can't nationalize you. I said, Bill, trust me, they're being nationalized. I mean, we're being nationalized. He said, Jeff, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. And I said, Bill, I'm telling you, we're being nationalized. And about a week later, he called me back and said, you know, you're right. You're being nationalized. And I said, no shit, Bill. I know we're being nationalized. <laughs> what fascinates me is that Viktor Orban, who is absolutely, I used to call him Putin without oil. <laughs> uh, and, and, and during this was happening, what I didn't know until many years later is he was, he was Vladimir Putin's first, you know, acolyte. And Putin really helped him. Um, take over the country. And now to see Viktor Orban being the darling of some American politicians and for Tucker Carlson to go over and spend a week glorifying Viktor Orban, I sit there and go, you got to be kidding me. So I'm, uh, you know, I I used to say, listen, my politics are well known. I've I've been a a long-term Democrat in Indiana, although some of my friends say a Democrat in Indiana is a Republican in the other 49 states. (laughs) Um, But 
you know, it, it used to be really, you know, I've got a lot of friends. My general counsel, Scott Enright, has been a lifelong conservative Republican. And we used to debate about, you know, allocation of resources and this policy would work and that wouldn't work. But today we have, you know, the, what scares me about, you know, Trumpism is you have people who really dismiss the notion of democracy. And that's something we've never seen before. Um, and, you know, we had a congressman in Indiana named Earl Langry. And the last day of the, the Nixon administration, a reporter went up to him and said, where are you on Nixon? He said, I'm with him all the way. And the reporter said to Congressman Langry, what about the facts? And Landgrieve said, don't confuse me with the facts. <laughs> and and that statement disqualified him. That was the end of Earl Landgrieve's career. You know, well, today, don't confuse me with the facts is half of America. Yeah. And you sit there and you say, how can this be? You know, I listen, I, I can see both sides of any political argument. But to say that this notion of democracy is passe uh, and that we do away with elections or all elections are rigged. And, you know, that that's something we've never seen. And it does frighten me a lot. Yeah, it does me as well. And uh, I never, I'm, I'm uh, liberal as, as you are. And I never thought that Liz Cheney would be someone that I actually looked up to ideally, but I, I do. And I think she's doing a phenomenal job and it's incredibly, uh, it, it is fearful or uh, it's frightening to me. If you go back to, I like to uh, talk about uh, Justice Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg and they had yeah. opposite views, uh, but they right. were able to be best friends. And I think he had a quote that it was about, I attack ideas, not people. And I feel yeah. like we're in this point of attacking people now, which is and, really Yeah, one, one of my one of my best friends is a guy named Evan Bai. Um, Evan's a dear friend. His wife, she, until she passed away, was on my board for 25 years. Uh, and Evan's dad was a senator, and I actually worked for Evan's dad. And Evan was later elected governor of the state of Indiana twice and, and served two terms in the Senate. And he said the difference when he went to the Senate as opposed to when his dad, he said, my dad was best of friends with, you know, Republicans. They'd come over for dinner. They'd play ball together. They did everything together. And he said, I go to the Senate, and you, you if you talk to the other party, it's like you're, you're a pariah. Um, that to me is frightening. I mean, yeah. most, most of my friends are Republicans and, you know, we kid about politics once in a while. Usually we just tried to figure out who's going to play quarterback for the Colts, which is <laughs> much more controversial. Well, which, by the way, I heard it just changed today. <laughs> it just changed today. It just changed today. I know we're all sitting there going, oh my gosh. Um, but I mean, you know, it just, it, it's a different world. And, you know, my daughter, who was the inspiration for the book, my youngest, I have three kids, but my youngest yeah, who's Samantha, now- Samantha, Carrie, and then a son, Bradley? And Brad, right. And, yep. you know, and Sam would always say, tell me about Watergate. Tell me about this. And I said, the difference in Watergate was that the Republican, the, the, Richard Nixon really was forced out, but an infamous meeting with Barry Goldwater and Howard Baker, where Nixon said, how many votes do I have in the Senate? And Goldwater, who was a legendarily fascinating man, said, you don't have five. And by the way, I'm not one of them. Um, <laughs> and that was the, that was the meeting in which Nixon realized he had to resign. Well, today, you know, other than Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and sometimes Mitt Romney, they all have sort of turned a blind eye to what I consider just be aberrational stuff. It has nothing to do with ideology. It just, you know, it's just, Fear, you know, self-preservation, and that—that's frightening. I mean, to me, I, I, you know, uh, you hope you stand for something more than keeping a job. 
I couldn't agree more. So ultimately with the Hungarian stations that you owned, they took them from you and essentially did they give you any money or they just literally came in, nationalized them and that was it? Yeah, they really, they just basically uh, changed all the rules and said, uh, changing the regulations and changing the licensing requirements and see you later. There were two of us, two national licenses. One was an Austrian, one was was ours. And we, we won in a couple courts and lost in one court and, Oh, it's life. Um, yeah. You know, and I think it's, it's frightening to see it because we loved it. We, we did a, our people did a great job there. The network was, I think in a country of 50 million people, I think we had like 8 million listeners a week. It was a giant, giant network. Yeah. And, uh, I'm a Hungarian, Hungarian Jew. And my father was born in Budapest and left in uh, 56. And he still has several family members there as do I. And it's unfortunately the conditions are very uh, tough there. There's been a big exodus out of the country. The uh, average yeah. Hungarian is making literally just a few hundred dollars a month. It's uh, very difficult uh, to make uh, ends meet. Did your father leave in 56 in the uprising? He did. He did. Yeah. yeah. My yeah. grandfather and um, a great uncle actually had a radio repair store and they repaired wow. physical uh, radios. My grandfather, unfortunately, lost his first daughter and wife in the Holocaust, and then he remarried mm-hmm. my grandmother and had my dad and my uncle. Uh, so he lost essentially everything twice, and uh, yeah. we were fortunate to have a family member uh, based uh, out of Cleveland, Ohio, who was uh, w- relatively well-off and sponsored them to come to the States. Yeah. Yeah, well, those uh, stories are so fascinating, and and, uh, and and getting to talk to people and you know, now you see some of this anti-Semitism rearing its ugly head again. So, yeah, yeah. we just hear, I'm sure you saw on the news with uh, Kanye West uh, making the anti-Semitic oh, yeah. comments. There was people yeah. that were hanging a, uh, a, a, basically a sign over a freeway overpass, an anti-Semitic yeah. sign saying that Kanye is right about the Jews. And I don't yeah. know if you saw, but earlier today, CAA just uh, dumped him as a client, which I thought was. No, I, I saw several sponsored head. Yeah. Uh, and I saw the story on the 405. Where was it on the 405? I saw there was a banner. Where? I don't know specifically where off the 405. I think somewhere near Santa Monica, but I'm not 100% sure yeah. where I mean, it was. Yeah, it's strange yeah. times. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we should all be better than that. I mean, this country was built on the notion that we all cared passionately about the country and we would all work together. Uh, one of my good friends, I said, how do we solve this? And he said, only one thing will unite us, aliens from the planet Zork. Um, because <laughs> when, when, when aliens come in from another universe, you forget whether the guy next to you listens to Tucker Carlson or Rachel Maddow. <laughs> and I said, yeah, it's an interesting, interesting point. I hadn't thought about that, but now that I think about it, I'm, I'm not sure I'm looking for the aliens, the planet, York, but, uh, but it is, it is, it is a different time, Chachi. It really is. And it's, you hope we're better than this. You really, I, do. I surely do. I surely do. Yeah. Where do you see things? Obviously, with uh, with Emmis, uh, you guys have made some really interesting strategic investments. Uh, I can't wait to read this book. And by the way, it's uh, you can pre-order it now on Amazon. Um, uh, and will it be available in bookstores and so forth as well? Oh, yeah. Well, I hope so. Yeah, I mean, that's great. Yeah, you can go. Uh, you can go to Amazon or Apple or Barnes and Noble or. Uh, just books a million. You can go anywhere and type in my name and should pop up. And, um, it's been so much fun. Um, it will be, it will be out and distributed on December 6th and you should be able to go in any bookstore, but you can pre-order it now. For those of you who want to listen to me for 300 pages, you could buy the audio book. Oh, are you um, going to narrate it yourself? I, I have already narrated it. My That's agent great. said, you got to do this yourself. And I said, oh, my God, who could listen to me for 300 pages? <laughs> um, Were you ever on the air, by the way? 
Yes, a little bit. The first station I ever ran, I actually did fill-in talk shows. And David Letterman was our midday guy. And I did fill-in for him. I did fill-in for the sports guy. And as a truth be told, I did a weekend regular sports talk show with a guy named Rick Cummings. I don't know whatever happened to Rick. Uh, Cummings, Cummings and I, in the very beginning, we had more laughs. We did more. Oh and I, I, didn't, I refused to use my name because I was a station manager. So I was Jack Howard. Uh, so it's Rick Cummings and Jack Howard. Howard's my middle name. And we had more fun. I'll never forget a friend who was a sales manager at Channel 13, which is the, I think in, now is the NBC affiliate. I think in those days it was the ABC affiliate. And she called me one day and said, I got to ask you a question. You're Jack Howard, aren't you? And I said, no. And she said, yeah, you are. You're Jack Howard. And I love Jack Howard. I listened to you, Rick and Jack. Now, what we now know is that an abbreviated career, I had one fan uh, and she called in a little bit later and I guess I, I stopped doing the show or something. So where's Jack Howard? I said, he's here. he was killed in a horrible plane crash, horrible, horrible, <laughs> painful death. <laughs> but I loved it. I, I always said I probably would have been, had more fun on the air, uh, instead of management, but yeah, Rick and I did that show. Um, and it pretty much ended our careers. That was in 1975. <laughs> yeah, that was and it. I think our careers pretty much crashed from there. Rick was actually the first morning man, uh, at W at WNS, our first station. Oh, I didn't uh, know that. He was our first morning man. And then we, we fired him, uh, and said, <laughs> We're, we're just going to make you head of programming. So he, um, yeah. As a matter of fact, when when I ran the first station, which where Letterman was the midday guy, and then Letterman took the job and said, I'm doing this for a year. I'm going to Hollywood to see if I can become a writer and a stand-up comedian. And then when Dave left, Rick took over the job. Amazing. And the reason why I'm not digging into Letterman anymore is because I've heard the Letterman stories, but just, uh, if you're listening to this, please go back, listen to the first episode that I did with Jeff, uh, yeah. uh early on. And we dig into Letterman and just, uh, all the great stations that he worked with and his whole, whole entire career. But, uh, I, I could go on and talk to you for, for hours. Uh, my friend, I'm really looking forward to it, to reading the book. Can't wait Thank to get it. Jackie. It'll be a great Han Hanukkah gift or a great stocking stuff for uh, December 9th. You said, so, uh, pre-order yeah. your copy and, uh, the audio version sounds even better. I, uh, you've got, you've got a good set of pipes. I do have to say when you first, well, I appreciate that. You're the, you're the first that says that, but yeah, I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. But I did it, you know, they, and my agent said, you got to do it. People want to hear it in your own voice and you'll know the right inflections. And I, and I had a wonderful guy. Uh, and because we've got studios here, they were able to come to my, our studios downstairs and I That's did fantastic. it. And I think it took me 18 hours or something to read it. You know, because there's different takes and you got to go back and forth. But I had more fun. Um, every part of the process has been fun. I hope I hope people find it funny and I hope they find it. Uh, hopefully there's some lessons of life that I've learned that they won't have to do the same stupid things I did. Now, I'm really I read when Lou wrote his book a couple of years ago, I was hoping that his book was going to be more what your book is going to be. His book was much more like a textbook than right. uh, than I thought it was. It was actually some of it was hard for me to to follow. So yeah. I'm excited to hear these stories and hear more of the personal aspect of it, the negotiations, and uh, I'm excited to dig in. And you'll be able to follow this because it's written, you know, uh, basically in, in fourth grade literary style. So <laughs> <Yeah. it'll> be, <laughs> it'll 
<laughs> it'll, it'll definitely be Paul. Maybe. Fourth grade, you're giving me a lot of credit. <laughs> <laughs> Fourth grade writing, you're giving me a lot of credit too, Jackie. Do your kids, uh, do they have any interest in the business? Do you think they'll follow in your footsteps? Well, my, my daughter is a psychologist, um, which means she's getting the practical training from the daily applications of our lives. <laughs> uh, and my son is actually, yes, my son works at Digitex. Uh, oh, done great. a great job. So he's there. I finally convinced him. Um, my daughter is a freshman in college. She's debating. I think she wants to save the world. Uh, she's an econ major and a public policy major. Last night, as a matter of fact, I talked to my kids, all of them every day. And she said, I, I'm having trouble. I said, what's that? She said, I'm having trouble exactly doing you know, what I want to do with my life. And I said, for God's sakes, you're 18 years old. You ain't going to know that for a long time. Don't you don't have to map this out at eighteen. You've sure. got exactly two months of college under your belt. Uh, <laughs> do not worry about this. Well, I don't know if I want to go into the business school or I want to go to the public policy, foreign policy school. I said, just take your time. You'll you'll be okay. Hey, I love that she's that driven though. That's great. She is very I I kid. Um that she has more intellectual curiosity at eighteen than I did at sixty. Uh, I'm very <laughs> very proud of that. Um, and she got into Georgetown and, uh, turned me down at USC in a heartbeat, but, uh, you know, USC, I have, that's my school and I love it dearly. Uh, but th- this is her, people always ask, why aren't you upset? And I said, no, this is her life. Uh, sure. I want her to be happy. Uh, Georgetown was her first choice and I'm just thrilled she's there. Georgetown is an incredibly prestigious school and uh, what, a, what a fun place to live. And yeah. uh, you, look, at USC is great as well, but I could, uh, I, I could understand the Georgetown choice for sure. Well, congr- congratulations. You must be re- really proud. That's a, yeah. uh, a great I've school. Got, I got good kids and they're healthy. And that's, uh, if, you, if your family's healthy, the rest of this is rounding yeah. here. Yeah. I know we're coming up on our time. I'm going to ask one more question, if you don't mind. Of the groups, the radio groups that are out there, now that you're watching more from afar, who do you think's doing it the best? Well, I have a, a lot of, you know, I mean, the, the couple of people, I love Ginny and I think, you know, Hubbard, I mean, if you, the culture's closest up us, Hubbard and Bonneville, clearly, I think Warshaw is a very smart guy. Love Jeff. The smaller market broadcasters, I'm, again, I'm very biased. I think Bud Walters and Beth at, uh, at Newhoff, very good. Uh, I know I'm leaving somebody out and when I don't mention them, they'll get angry sure. with me, but those are the ones that off the top of my head come to mind. Did Warsaw have the, the dry gunpowder to do the cumulus deal? I was, when I saw that and I don't know enough about it, I was like really surprised at that, but I, I have, don't. I have no idea. I know he, he lives in that uh, triangle of Connecticut where all of the money in the world resides. Um, so my guess is that he, I think, I know he's had some backers that supposedly do again. It's really hard for me to know. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for taking the time. Really no, appreciate Chachi, it. This is great. It's I'm fun. excited. Anytime I'm looking forward to seeing you and, uh, anytime. Always and a fun. quick, a quick plug for uh, Deborah and the folks over at Radio Inc. If you have not uh, gotten your forecast tickets, now is the time to get them because Jeff is going to be interviewed there about his book. So, highly recommend uh, you come out. You'll be able to see and meet Jeff in person, and it's a great event. So, uh, uh, Radio Inc. forecast, Thanks, Jeff. Jackie. You bet. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to Chachi Loves Everybody. If you like the show, we hope you leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends. Please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This has been a Benstown McVeigh podcast production. Hosted and researched by Dave Chachi Dennis. Executive producer, Darren Silva. Producer and editor, Jake Urbanic. Show coordinator, Estefania Padilla. Marketing and distribution, Suzanne Aksu and Robbie Gessel.